a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm glad to see that you are part of my audience today. Especially want to welcome those who are joining us for the first time. I'm, I'm giving this greeting because uh, I am being contacted by more and more friends and listeners who are saying, hey, how can I steer people to your podcast? How can I help other people know what you're doing? And so uh, I, I assume that that means that they're actually actively sharing it. So if, uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope, uh, I hope you find something worthwhile here. Uh, my goal is not to tell you everything that, uh, that you must believe, but simply to present you with information that hopefully offers a broader perspective on the world around us, the ability to see it a little more clearly, a little more independently, but most importantly, to recognize that you are not powerless. We actually have a lot of options. We have more influence than we think, even if that influence is being used in small ways that don't necessarily make the you know, television news or aren't printed in, I guess, what passes for newspapers these days. I don't even know what to say anymore. Newspapers are <laughs> they've kind of gone the way of the dodo. You don't see many print editions. Bottom line is, it doesn't have to be a public kind of thing for you to have real and lasting influence. And that is the name of the game in... Uh, interesting times such as those in which we live. This program is made possible each weekday by my sponsors, including Alta Bank Mortgage and Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. And if you have the opportunity, if you know that uh, I'm going to be needing, you know, a, 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 new, uh, a new home loan or to refinance my existing home loan or I need commercial insurance, I'd really love it if you would contact these guys. You can find all the information you need at the bottom of my show notes, which are published each day at thebrianhydeshow.com. I also have a lot of great essays, links that will take you to the different uh, commentators and commentaries that I share. And we've got some great stuff to talk about today. We're going to be talking about uh, how, how hard it's been watching small business owners being forced into financial ruin and despair. And I'm encouraged in that I'm seeing Evidence that there are there are some who are saying, I'm not going to put up with this. I'm not going to sacrifice my livelihood to the COVID boogeyman. Now, I know the, the easiest thing to do would be, well, we got to dismiss these guys as deniers. And they're, they're just, you know, radical, uh, selfish people. I read an incredibly well-written but terribly wrong essay last night from a, a psychologist who was decrying the extreme selfishness and people are just out for themselves and they don't even care what's going on. And I mean, she was very sincere. But what she was describing was she was making a very powerful emotional plea for the collective to prevail over the individual. Because she was suggesting that uh, people who stand up for their individual rights are only doing it out of selfishness and a desire to get ahead at the expense of everyone else, particularly as it pertains to covid now, hopefully you and I know better than that. Hopefully we understand that, look, there are times where a person can behave selfishly, but when a person is acting in their self-interest, when they are standing up for their natural rights, for their own self-determination, that's not a selfish act. 
because by that act, which almost always puts them at some kind of risk, if not from you know physical risk of being thrown in jail or otherwise having violence committed against them, it puts them at risk of being ostracized and dismissed and marginalized by the crowd, which mostly doesn't understand the importance of those individual rights. But the act of standing up for those rights is an act of selflessness in the sense that it's not just their own rights that they're standing up for. They're standing up for those who don't even understand it and making sure that they understand, making sure that it's the message is being sent. It is not okay for the collective to subsume the individual in whatever the collective wants. I mean, we hear a lot of lofty talk about democracy. Well, you know, this damages democracy in some way. Why, this is a terrible thing. I saw this the other day and I thought, well, this is a really good retort, and that is democracy is when 51% of the people want to put the others in camps. Does that, does that make the point? Well, what the majority wants, the majority gets. That's democracy. And depending on the circumstances, it can be indistinguishable from a lynch mob. Now, a republic and a representative republic in fact, I'll take it one step further, a constitutional representative republic abides by rules that limit the size and scope and power of government to ensure that the rights of the individual are observed. Whether that person is just one little minority by themselves or a small minority of a group of people, or even if that, that includes the individual rights of, of the majority on a particular matter. There are some places where Government power is absolutely restricted. That's what your rights do. They limit the power of government over you. So surrendering that to the collective is not doing any favors for any of it. It's not showing selflessness. It's not showing concern for others. It's simply yielding to the will of the collective. And the collective is, uh, well, the collective is often wrong just like stampeding herds of buffalo, are often wrong, but they don't care. The stampede has begun. We've got a direction to go. Let's go. All right. I'm a little off track. Let's bring it back. Alan Stevo, in a letter published on LewRockwell.com, this is an open letter to business owners regarding COVID-19. Here's his advice. He says, as I've been saying for months, people have to open up the economy every way which they can. A few bar and restaurant owners have seen the need to band together and fight the lockdowns. And so he says, as a business owner of any kind, you need to think and take action along these lines, but in a much larger way. You need to form associations of your types of business, whether it be barbershops, salons, bars, restaurants, small grocery stores, gift shops, caterers, food trucks, inns, independent truckers. Each type of business puts together its own association or associations. And in addition to whatever you do to survive, you each file lawsuits against governors and state public health departments for unconstitutional lockdowns based on false science. By the way, he has the footnotes here. If you're looking for some you know, information to back up that assertion that these lockdowns are not based on sound science, they're not producing the results that we were told they would produce. Now, the good news is several lawsuits along these lines already exist. And they reveal how to proceed. Every lawsuit is accompanied by a major publicity push, alerting the press and the public, 
and describing the horrendous effects of lockdowns and closures on business owners. Now, whether or not those lawsuits succeed, Alan Stevo says they provide an occasion for the dissemination of truth. So imagine this. Associations of barbershops, bars, restaurants, truckers, etc., each filing its own lawsuit and each launching a PR campaign to expose the truth of what's happening to small and medium-sized business owners. Small business owners and entrepreneurs are decidedly independent-minded. You each have your own way of building your business, but you can form these associations, create, and bolster your power. And he gives a quote. You know, this is, this is what you might hear, you know, on the news by following this course. Today in Missouri, a group of 50 bar owners jointly filed suit against the governor, charging that lockdowns of their operations are illegal. Their representative spoke to reporters outside the Capitol. Multiply that action by 100 or more like it, launched by associations of business owners across the country, and you have something, something formidable. There's no doubt that governments are targeting you, he says. They've been coming after you like rabid hounds. They want to close you down and out for good. Their pals are already buying up the bankrupt properties of small businesses at bargain basement prices. Your enemies want to concoct a new world where only large corporations survive, rather. They're counting on you to remain scattered, unorganized, and weak. And he says, your response to this war needs to be strong. And in this case, there is strength in numbers. And so he says, I make this offer for any new association of small businesses with at least 30 true and honorable members or owners ready and willing to fight for the lo- fight the lockdowns, I will give you every piece of advice about acquiring publicity that I can muster. And he gives his contact info. He says, I've been running the website, nomorefakenews.com, for 20 years. I've gained some knowledge about disseminating the truth. Alan Stevo reminds us their side has tremendous resources enabling them to flood messaging through media and government. Our side needs to find ways to counter that force. He says, all is not lost. Freedom doesn't die in people's minds and hearts. It's there forever. If it's asleep... It needs to be reawakened. Nobody said it would be easy, but he says those who say it's impossible are wrong. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out. If you are one of those small business owners, take him up on his offer. And I'll throw my, uh, my name in there as well. I may have a small but hopefully influential podcast. I will do what I can to help you as well in terms of getting the publicity out there and getting your message out. Please take us up on it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks once again for joining me. And please consider subscribing to my podcast. I make, a, I make it very easy for you. There's a link available right at the end of my show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Something else you may find of interest, this is particularly true. If, if you are fairly new to, uh, to the idea of, you know, I'm going to stand up and I'm, I am going to make my voice heard. I am going to think for myself. I'm not just going to sit back and take orders from somebody else. Here's what you're allowed to think. First of all, I welcome you to, uh, you know, whatever it is, red-pilled reality. <laughs> I don't even know what to call it. I, I, I congratulate you on shaking off those mental chains and taking those steps 
to own your own worldview. We've all been there, and it's it's a tough thing to do. And you you are open to criticism. You're open to pushback from those who I don't prefer to sit down in uh, you know Plato's cave and watch the flickering images on the wall than start that journey trudging upwards towards the light. That's okay. There's going to come a point where you're going to want to go back and help rescue them. So just keep on with your journey. Know that there are people who have gone before, who have thoughtfully left some, you know, markers along the way, little cairns of stones that you and I can follow. But know that uh, you are not alone and that uh, I'm very grateful that we have resources like this available to us where we can do what I've heard referred to as a media bypass (laughs) <laughs> it's like, you know, uh, quadruple bypass surgery. We're bypassing those, uh, those organs that are, um, that are there for the purpose of filtering and twisting and spinning and limiting whatever information is allowed to come into our consciousness. I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but I promise you, I will give you things to think about. And one of the things that I have on my website is a thing called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And these are some of the best news aggregator sites, some of the best information sources I've found. Again, you still have to be a human truth detector. Even though I find that uh, there's some pretty good information found at these sites, it's on you to determine, does this fit? Is it truthful? Does uh, Does it hold up to scrutiny? Because you've got to be the one who's thinking like an expert and sorting fact from fiction. Personal responsibility has always played a very central role in what it takes to be a free person. And this is no exception. So I'm, I'm sneaking a few anxious looks ahead to next week. And, I, and I'll admit, I'm a little bit nervous about this. Look, the Christmas holiday was wonderful. This has been a pretty peaceful week. We're kind of in that twilight zone where it's not quite the new year and we're not quite out of the holidays. A lot of people have this time off and I'm enjoying that. But looking ahead to January 6th, there is just this... Uh, this hint of trouble in the back of my mind about what is going to happen when the Electoral College meets to certify the vote. Or actually, I guess they've already met. Let Let me restate that. When the vote is certified by Congress, the Electoral College has already met I probably need to change this in my show notes here. But when when that vote is certified, or possibly not certified, depending on how things go, what do you suppose is going to happen? I know it does raise some interesting questions. And here's here's the thing. I know hundreds of thousands of people are planning to go on January 6th in support of Donald Trump and to protest what they see as um, very blatant fraud and widespread fraud that took place in this, this last election. I'm certain there will be counter-protesters like there have always been. And, and this is the thing that, that kind of makes me go, ooh, I think that this could be a really volatile situation in the sense that you're going to have some some true believers, and I mean the hardcore true believers from both sides, showing up in Washington, D.C. And, and what happens when it doesn't go the way that these true believers wanted? Now, I'm, I'm leaving that open for your interpretation, whether it's, you know, the Trump supporters don't get their way or whether something happens and suddenly it's the folks on the left that are going, hey, wait a minute, we've been screwed. So, you can see where my concern lies, right? The potential for violence is great. I saw at least one person who was uh, just offering some advice saying, hey, look, for those of you who are going to be going, I know hotels are shutting down. You're probably going to see some news footage of a lot of businesses boarding up in anticipation of there's going to be unrest. 
But there was someone who was offering advice, hey, you're going to have a hard time finding parking, so it's best just to take the train into town. But the, the, the piece of advice they gave that really jumped out at me was they said, just be sure that you're gone before dark. Make sure you get out of D.C. before dark. And I thought, ooh, yeah, maybe, maybe it could, could be a, an interesting night. Now, something I wanted to, to point out here is, you know, I mean, it's been pretty calm. Have you noticed this since the election? Things have been uh, rather calm from the standpoint of, uh, well, we haven't really seen a whole lot of violence now, have we? Things have been pretty, pretty tame. Daisy Luther actually wrote a a great piece on this. This was published today on LewRockwell.com. And she says, Lest people think that 2020 was just about COVID-19, lockdowns, and economic disaster, don't forget about the protests, riots, and escalating exhibits of rage. And she gives a recounting. And I mean, she has lots of videos to back up everything that she's talking about here. She starts with the triggering event of the death of George Floyd, killed during an arrest on May 25th in Minneapolis. The entire thing caught on video. It had all the potential to be a turning point with regard to police brutality and race because the nation was riveted and outraged. But then, as often occurs, those protests were co-opted. Extremists took over, extremists on the other side took umbrage, and Mr. Floyd became a footnote. And 2020 devolved into ongoing violence in American streets that most of us hadn't seen in our lifetimes. Distinct sides were chosen, lines were chosen, and those who saw the middle ground were quickly shouted down while America burned. And she walks you through... May, Minneapolis erupted into violence, excellent, I'm sorry, erupted immediately into violent riots that turned deadly. Rioters set the police station on fire. Within a week of Mr. Floyd's death, demonstrations had spread to 30 cities across the U.S., many turning from peaceful protests into riots. She has video of the riots in Denver. Seattle was the site of particularly destructive and violent acts. In fact, protesters took over a six-block area in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle, driving out police and maintaining their presence there for months. They even strategically changed the name of the area to make it part of a bigger movement. In June, the National Guard was deployed to cities across the country in an attempt to quell the violence. And she has scenes from Atlanta, Seattle, Los Angeles, and Hollywood... And she also has a link to a National Guardsman sharing a personal account of what was really going on during the Seattle riots. In July, police and rioters in cities across the country engaged in violent crashes, clashes rather. Federal police squared off with rioters in Portland. In August, fuel was added to the raging inferno when Jacob Blake was shot by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. At this point, facts of the shooting are no longer relevant. Any police violence against a black suspect was going to result in violence. By that evening, Kenosha was on fire. And the destruction of Kenosha, a moderate-sized town, was absolutely astounding. She says, we ran into the first-person account of a Kenosha resident who said everybody in the city was getting ready for war. Looting and rioting broke out in Chicago after another police shooting, and the Magnificent Mile was trashed by angry mobs. It got so bad that Mayor Lori Lightfoot ordered the drawbridges raised. Interestingly, activists attempted to justify the looting as reparations. September 1st, riots occurred for the 95th consecutive day in Portland. Violence also erupted in Louisville, Kentucky, when the grand jury declined to charge the officers accused of killing Breonna Taylor, a local paramedic, with homicide. And these protests also spread across the nation. Some of those arrested in the New York City riots were entitled kids from wealthy families enacting their revolutionary strategy. In October, Walter Wallace was shot 16 times by Philadelphia police during a mental health call after he refused to drop a knife. Looting soon followed the rioting. 
and November. While Americans braced for riots based on the outcome of the hotly contested U.S. presidential election, Daisy Luther points out these fears did not come to fruition. In fact, the violence has slowed down since the outcome, which is still being argued by attorneys for President Trump. And she asks the question, did police shootings suddenly cease? Did racially motivated violence suddenly end? Did the justice system radically evolve? Did everyone finally agree and settle their differences amicably? It's almost enough to make a person ask questions about that widespread violence from May through October. All I know is, I think I'd be stocking up on the things I needed most, just in case I was, you know, going to stay home for a while. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Ah, I have, I have so much good stuff I want to share with you, and time, as always, is kind of the enemy because it goes so quickly. All right, so, yeah, I have concerns about uh, the potential for renewed violence in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. I'm not uh, saying I know for sure it's going to happen. I'm just saying that uh, the potential is, is high. And, and I'm not in any way condoning standing up and burning down buildings and beating people because they disagree with you. I think that there is a very legitimate reason to stand up for what is right and to stand up for what is good. But I think also that one of the toughest things about finding the courage to stand up against uh, what I see as the systematic dismantling of Western civilization's culture of freedom is that a great many people do not know exactly what they're standing for. I mean, they get the, the basic idea, well, freedom's good and, you know, free markets are good and you know, private property's good and we should uh, protect our rights. But beyond that, they really haven't done the deep study. And by the way, I'm not an expert, but I will tell you, I have definitely applied myself over the last couple of decades to get a better understanding. And because of that, I'm fairly clear on those things that I stand for. And I would recommend to anybody, it's, it, the time to start is now. Just start. That knowledge will accrue quicker than you think, but it will give you greater confidence and greater understanding. It'll also give you less to have to prove to anybody else. The people who get most dogmatic and most violent and angry are the people who really aren't sure what they stand for. That's why when they bump into something that either disagrees or appears to counter whatever they, they believe to be true, they get angry. How do I handle this? I'll get violent. I'll turn into a gorilla and start you know throwing, throwing around some dominance. You don't need to do that. The toughest battle you're going to face is the one with yourself. That's the one you need to win. And by the way, to, in order to get that understanding, where do you begin? Well, I strongly recommend subscribing to freemansperspective.com. This is Paul Rosenberg's website, and this guy has got a great take on just about everything. But he has a particularly good series of essays called The West That Was, and I want to share with you some excerpts from this because he talks about what came before us. What was different? If you didn't live it or you hadn't studied it, you probably wouldn't know this. So he talks about America in 1910. <clears throat> now he says 1910 was well before my own time, of course. But he says, I knew at least 10 people who lived through it as adults and discussed the era at some length with one of them. 
That was his great uncle Dave. And so he says, this is an era I still feel that I can reach out and touch. One of the more interesting things about this era regards our separation from it. The great event that forged this divide was World War I, which is greatly underappreciated in modern discourse. Schools cover World War II in great depth, but they run through World War I fairly quickly. However, he says World War I, the Great War, changed human affairs and human consciousness far more than World War II did. The world before and the world afterward were very different places. Now, he says, bear in mind that in 1910, people lived very similarly to the way we do. They, particularly in the cities, lived in houses with central heating, refrigerated their food, and ate the same foods we eat today. They had newspapers, affordable and rapid transportation, access to medical care, telegrams, delivery in an hour or two was common, and so on. Even movies and radio were starting to spread. Cars were arriving, as were electricity and telephones. Airplanes were starting to appear in the skies. Railroads went practically everywhere. In fact, he, he has a, a, a very illustrative picture here. Just to give you a feel for daily life in 1910, here's a list of family expenses kept during November of that year. And it's, I, I got to say, I'm looking at their expenses and going, wow, they actually spent a fairly, uh, fairly large amount of money, you know. $1,641 on one side of the ledger, 597 on the other. I wonder what that would be in today's terms. But he says a major characteristic of this world was that people tended to be significantly more confident. And the primary reason for that was that their world was comprehensible. More or less, all the factors of their daily lives were understandable. Even their scientific discoveries were understandable, provided that one was willing to get the necessary books and read them. It's telling that television, just a few years later, was invented by a farm boy named Philo T. Farnsworth, whose knowledge came largely from reading magazines. Now, he says there's a critical difference between the person who sees the world as comprehensible and the person who does not. Understanding the world, we tend to make plans to accomplish our goals and then pursue them, confident that we can or at least are likely to reach those goals. Feeling overcome by a world we cannot understand or rely upon, we tend to hunker down in place. Not knowing what may or may not work, we pull back our horizons, hold on to whatever we do have, and refuse to let go, even if letting go is required to get to something better. So the bottom line is, those who can comprehend the world believe they can improve it, and so they insert their will into it. Then he describes what it was like. The U.S. in 1910, he says, I've always liked the way Bill Buckler described this era in The Privateer. Quote, there was a golden world which developed between 1815 and 1914. Over that century, and with the interruptions of a few short wars, a general peace had been the main feature. An immense optimism covered the world, economically underpinned by the classical gold standard. Gold coinage, though often of different weights in different countries, was money. The entire Western world was a form of payments union in the sense that gold was money. Governments were small, tiny compared to today. What taxes existed were almost imperceptible. The U.S. had no income tax. Privacy, property, and contracts were sacrosanct. End quote. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, as I'll often say, the people of this era often behaved foolishly, but they made their errors in different and better contexts than we make ours in today. And the world between 1815 and World War I was a type of golden age. And, in fact, the technical wonders we enjoy would have been impossible without these people bringing them forward to us. 
Between 1919 and 1935 or so, a great deal of human life was arranged in response to World War I and its pointless honors, pointless horrors, rather. And the fact is that the West, in general, lost its confidence in this era. Sensitive commentators at the time, such as Virginia Woolf, made note of it. And we see it from a number of people who reminisced about it. For example, economist Friedrich Hayek recalled this, quote, It used to be the boast of free men that so long as they kept within the bounds of the known law, there was no need to ask anybody's permission or to obey anybody's orders. It is doubtful whether any of us can make this claim today. End quote. Now, this was true in 1910. The law was simple. Legislation hadn't yet overtaken the common law. And even beyond the rules you knew, law's universal standard was the reasonable man. So long as you were reasonable and your actions defensible within reason, you really didn't have to worry much about the law. And regardless of the Victorian image of the time, there were many independent movements toward radical progress. Author Leonard Wolfe wrote about the movement he was involved in this way, quote, We were not part of a negative movement of destruction against the past. We were out to construct something new. We were in the van of builders of a new society which should be free, rational, civilized, pursuing truth and beauty. It was all tremendously exhilarating. End quote. Nor were women entirely silent. Here's a short passage from Mary Wollstonecraft. Quote, To be a good mother, a woman must have sense, and that independence of mind which few women possess who are taught to depend entirely on their husbands. Meek wives are in general foolish mothers, wanting their children to love them best and take their part in secret against the father who's held up as a scarecrow. End quote. Wow. Paul Rosenberg says, I often think of this time as the near miss of 1900. He says, I'm convinced that if somehow this moment had been preserved and extended, we'd be living far better and more happily than we are right now. He says, as I've noted in other places, a major source of our world's confusion arises from our money. And if that sounds odd, he says, please bear in mind that money is the primary tool of our survival, being half of every transaction for food, housing, and so on. In 1910, new money had to be pulled from the ground with difficulty, and that difficulty kept it honest. It couldn't be created by decree, which changed the tone of everything from taxes to stocks and bonds. More importantly, it kept the working man in a position of importance. He says, the next time you go through an old city, look at the grand homes that were built in this era and then consider this. Those homes were built by grocers, mechanics, longshoremen, and bakers. As a result, working people carried more dignity than they have since. Hard work and prudence paid in those days. There was no tax on income to siphon away one's surplus. The hard workers of this era made loans rather than begging for them. They inf- this informed not only their attitudes regarding themselves, but the mating strategies of the young. In 1910, the young man went out to earn his nest egg and thereby convinced the girl to marry him. Now, there were myriad exceptions and failures, of course, but this was the standard model and could not have stood if it had been impossible. And in fact, Paul Rosenberg says it was ridiculed and expelled a decade or two later once the war and the income tax changed conditions so very few could rise to its challenge. He says, in part one of this series, we said that Americans of 1960 still believed in their culture. Well, these people certainly shared in that, but they believed in themselves in a deeper way than the Americans of 1960 did. And certainly far more than most modern people believe in themselves. What an amazing essay. You'll find a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Go check it out for yourself. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I hope you'll take the time to go and check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I also hope you will take the time to uh, click on those sponsor links down below and get in touch with my sponsors. Uh, look, the time is fleeting. Like uh, <laughs> you have till the end of the year, that's uh, tomorrow, uh, to get a hold of my friend John Staples at uh, Alta Bank Mortgage. Right now, they are offering incredibly low rates, and and this is you know no appraisal fees. I mean, this is this is just for a very limited time. But the the interest rates are very very low. If you're looking for a new home mortgage, looking to refinance your existing mortgage, John is the guy who can help you out. And again, the contact information is right there in the sponsor links on my show notes page at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right. Got an article here that I, I won't have time to share with you, but I want you to read anyway. Robert E. Wright, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, notes that a lot of people are reaching the boiling point as, as we continue to be backed into a corner by statists and statist policies. And I think the thing that really pushes a lot of us over the edge is the idea that the people backing us into the corner keep insisting, hey, this is what you really wanted. No, I didn't. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Robert Wright has a really good recap of some of the official acts that are sparking anger as well as some of the acts of disobedience that are showing our refusal to go along. I strongly recommend it as just a, a good reality check on what's happening and also as, as a reinforcement that it's okay to stand up for yourself. As long as you are not doing so in a way that infringes on the rights of others, it is, there's no shame in telling someone no. I'm not going to go along with my own destruction or the destruction of my business or my livelihood, etc. So look for that article again. It's in the show notes. I have another article I want to share with you, and I thought this was, was fascinating just because I hear a lot of different complaints about, uh, you know, uh, well, it's, it's Marxism. It's, it's collectivism. It's the idea that, well, you know, the rich are the people who are really having it good and everybody else is being exploited by them. Brian Kaplan recently took his family to a uh, on a vacation in Mexico and he talks about what it's like to travel in a third world country and how wonderful their vacation was and yet how some people on the surface would look at that and say oh so you well-off people went down there and exploited these poor people who waited on you hand and foot blah 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 how dare you I'm sorry how dare you there we go but I want you to listen to his case of social desirability bias versus tourism because it's an excellent example of something that sounds bad but actually is a good thing. And here it is. Brian Kaplan says, In the Yucatan, we stayed at several all-inclusive resorts. He says, These resorts were a good fit for my family. When you're traveling in a third-world country with four kids during a pandemic, you want a convenient supply of abundant and tasty food and enough variety to please each and every picky eater, himself included. Since the portions were smallish, he says, we routinely ordered 12 to 15 dinners for dinner, all at zero marginal cost. At least in Mexican resorts, tips are appreciated but not expected. Economically speaking, he says, there's a straightforward win-win case for these Mexican resorts. Not only do they make the tourists happier, but they make the Mexicans happier by providing them with better opportunities than they have elsewhere in the Mexican economy. 
If you consider this verdict through the distorted lens of social desirability bias, though, a radically different picture appears before your eyes. Once you forget economics, he says, you could easily describe the resort experience in the following sordid way. A bunch of rich foreigners show up in a poor country and take advantage of the locals' desperate policy. The foreigners relax in the sun and stuff themselves on fried fish and castacan. I don't know what that is, but apparently he really likes it. While the poor Mexicans wait on them hand and foot. The Mexicans toil long hours for low pay, while the rich foreigners cavalierly order margarita after margarita, tequila after tequila. The rich foreigners don't even bother to pick up after their their fat, lazy selves. Every day, poor women of color clean their rooms and make their beds. Most of the foreigners treat the workers like inferiors, with a typical attitude somewhere between demanding and rude. Yet no matter how rude the guests may be, the impoverished workers are required to kiss up to the guests. Expressing warmest regards for foreigners who've never spent a single day in poverty is in the job description. At the end of each meal, the workers can't even count on a tip. Wow. That does sound pretty bleak. Now, Brian Kaplan says, suppose Mexican law prohibited such resorts and you wanted to end the ban. Just imagine how easily defenders of the status quo could demagogue. These resorts allow rich foreigners to exploit poor Mexicans. They are an affront to decency, to dignity. Why should we let rich foreigners gorge themselves while innocent Mexican children go to bed hungry? Mexicans deserve good jobs, not this basura. I hope I didn't just cuss. I don't speak Spanish. He says the result of this demagoguery naturally would be to prevent Mexicans from bettering their condition. Bettering. Wow, what a great concept. He says it captures the idea of improvement without falsely promising that the end result will be good in absolute terms. But he says here's the key economic point. Banning resorts saves no Mexican children from hunger. Banning resorts would rather cause Mexican children to be hungry by depriving their parents of the best jobs they can get. The reason why Mexicans toil in all-inclusive resorts, despite all the obvious drawbacks, is that their other prospects are worse, often much worse. Just talk to the guy desperately peddling straw hats on the beach. Now, he says at this point, it's tempting to enthuse. Let's just have a dialogue about this. The demagogues have their view. The economists have their. So let's, let's try to reach a consensus. To this, he says, I once again say, dialogue? We don't need no stinking dialogue. Dialogue hands social desirability bias a massive home field advantage. Far better to let observed choices prevail over mere words. Still, he asks, how can rich foreign tourists be happy at their resorts? Truth be told, the vast majority are, like almost all human beings, selfish and obvious. And that's largely for the best. If the tourists' consciences pained them, well, their main reaction would be to stay home, not to come and tip generously. And he says, what about me? I may be just as selfish as the rest of the tourists, but since social science is my life, I can't be oblivious to any social world around me. What keeps me feeling comfortable, honestly, is the faces of the workers. Even when they're off the job, most of them seem quite content. And while I wouldn't want to have their jobs, the magic of hedonic adaptation allows even humble resort employees to feel pretty good about their lives. That's not just psychological theory. It's observed fact. And here's the broader lesson. He says, as I tell my kids at a young age, many things in life sound bad but are good. Rich foreigners living it up in the third world is one of those things. And the list goes on and on and on. 
Now, I have a few friends who I think would, would feel more than just a little triggered to hear this defense of, oh, well, how could he go and, and, and just have a good expense when there are people there that are poor? And I think they're deliberately ignoring the fact that uh, he is going and sharing some of his surplus with them. And for those who would say, well, why does he share all of it? Well, because it's his right not to. Just like you wouldn't want someone compelling you to share all of yours. I mean, maybe you would like that. I don't know. Go walk down a, an alley in some major city with you know, a stack of $100 bills sticking out of your back pocket. Let me know how that works out for you. If you've got the surplus, gee, you should feel pretty good about sharing it, whether it's being taken at gunpoint or not. The point, though, is that he creates opportunities by patronizing these resorts. And while I would not aspire, tell my kids, hey, I think you're, you, should, uh, you should aspire to be a housekeeper in, in a, a Mexican you know, beach resort somewhere. For the people who live there, it is an improvement on what would otherwise be a pretty difficult living. I don't know. Maybe it's one of those glass half full, glass half empty kind of things. But all the resentment that I see directed towards people who have substance, we could call it capital if you want, seems misplaced. Particularly, let's bring it back home here to America. I see a lot of uh, disdain for business owners, for people who own uh, you know, a particular uh, factory or something like that. How dare they own this factory and, you know, they pay their workers only this much of a wage. Why, you know, they're making millions, but the workers, they're only making this much. and It's just so unfair. And on the surface, it's like, yeah, you want to just start comparing, you know, the, uh, the amount of money in a person's paycheck or the amount of money that a person makes in the course of a year. I could see where a person might come away with the idea that, well, gee, that's pretty lopsided. But it doesn't take into account what the person who built that factory had to do in terms of risk, in terms of coming up with the capital to actually build it. I mean, I don't know. If you, if you haven't actually built a facility and then staffed it and, and you know, supplied it with, with the equipment and training and everything that you need, the insurance, the permits, all the things that they have to jump through, maybe you're speaking out of turn to say that, you know, they're just being greedy. And the fact that nobody marched those workers into that business at the point of a gun and told them, you will work for what we pay you. They voluntarily agreed to work for the uh, agreed-upon wage. So at some level, it works for them. And if it works for the business owner, guess what? We're all happy. Opportunity has been created. This is The Brian Hyde Show.